You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from the home of Bethel's greatest nerds, such as Chris Moore, Andy Bramson, Mitchell Crum, uh, this is the 252. Should I explain that? We reference? don't lay claim to being the greatest nerds. No, we, you have uh, a no. fan club that we wrote on good. the board in front of me, Election Shock Therapy, Bethel's greatest nerds. Yeah. Some people seek out titles like that, and some yes. people have that thrust upon them. Yes. You have that thrust upon you. Yes. I will accept the mantle of nerddom. <laughs> yeah. So when's the next EST episode, by the way, Chris? I think Martin? next week we're okay. recording. All right. Your fans want to know. Uh, that has nothing to do with this podcast. This is about uh, sports. But it's a great podcast network. You should subscribe live from AC Second. <laughs> that was just shilling. That's this, right. <laughs> this is a podcast about the history and politics of sports, the 252, which uh, we should remind everyone takes its name from the number of a class that Chris yes. and I will be teaching next spring. I'm saying all that because this is our season finale for season mm-hmm. one. We've done 13, I think, pretty good episodes. We've hit mm-hmm. our stride. We're going to rest up for the summer. And in do, their second do, do we segment, qualify for a bowl game? Uh, everyone does. I, I read they're oh, adding great. a Fenway Park bowl game. And when they do that, 65% of uh, teams in the bowl series will make a bowl game. Does that mean you either make a bowl or your coach gets fired? I hope so. I okay. think so. Yeah. Unless you're the gopher. So when you guys teach this course, are you going to refer to the course as the 252? Maybe. I think we should. I think we should. Anyway, in the second segment, uh, Sam has to step out. But Chris and I are going to kind of wrap up the season and maybe go back to the course, kind of look at the syllabus, think mm-hmm. about what we've talked about, what we haven't talked about, maybe add a talker or two. And talk about what we've learned from doing 13 episodes of this discussion, yeah. talking to some guests from Bethel and beyond. Mm-hmm. So that, that's coming up in segment two. Let's kick off with uh, Worth the Watch. Now, Sam, I want to break up Worth the Watch. Sure. We're going to do a little talkers. bit of talk around at least two of these and very briefly around the first one. Let's start with mine. All right. So Chris Garrett said that we should watch the 2019 Badminton Asia Championships. Uh, China took the men's and women's singles title as well as the men's doubles title. The women's doubles title and the mixed doubles titles went to Japan. As I said, there's, it's mostly dominated by one country, but there are a couple others. Uh, I assume they were terrific, um, scintillating matches. You know, again, I'm all in on anything played at the highest level. So, right. yeah, we'll ba- badminton, high-level badminton is pretty fun to watch. So I, I can't go very deep here in analyzing badminton, but can we talk about the etymology of this? Because the sport please is do. actually... Oh, please. can, well, please do. Well, this, refl- this reflects deep... Deep research. But the sport goes back quite a while, especially in South and East Asia, but it also existed in Europe in different forms. Do Mm. you want to guess when the word shuttlecock entered the English language? I'll bet this comes from the French. I don't have any basis Uh, for that. Well, why don't we start with when? Because I can actually. Uh, It it actually is native to English itself. Oh, is it really? Well, it's a compound word, right? It's derived from two other words. Okay. Wow. Uh, I hate I hate it. this. I hate guessing because as a historian, I'm going to be wrong. But yeah. uh, I'm going to say 1530s. 1530s, Chris. I was going to say earlier. I was going to say 13th century. Sam is almost right on. According to Webster's, it's 1522. So wow, Henry Sam. VIII. I was going to say it felt like a Henry VIII thing. So the the idea here is uh, two words. Uh, I mean, the cock part because they're actually feathers. I mean, now they're yes, plastic, but sure. I mean, they're feathers sticking out of the back of this. So that's kind of obvious. The shuttle part is that the back and forthness of the game mm-hmm. struck them as like a loom. Hmm. And the shuttle oh, is part of the oh, loom moving back and forth. Huh. Yeah. 
Okay, that's all I can say. Wow. Okay, let's move on to Sam. You talked about another kind of sport. Yes, I said that we should watch the NFL draft, which I actually watched the first round of. Mm -hmm. Uh, While it's always fun to watch, I thought this year's draft was a little uh, on the dull side. In part, there wasn't a ton of skill position players in the the first round. As predicted, the Arizona Cardinals Mm -hmm. took Oklahoma quarterback Kyler Murray. At number one, and the San Francisco 49ers took Ohio State defensive lineman Nick Bosa at number two. Do I want to talk about Trump at this point, Chris Moore? Do a little mini EST. <sighs> because Donald Trump congratulated one of those two people. Yep. And it wasn't Kyler Murray. It was not Kyler Murray. Uh, it was So uh, Nick Bosa has been a relatively vociferous defender of the Trump administration mm-hmm. on his Twitter account, which mm-hmm. is, I would just, I'll just throw this out there. I don't have a lot to say about this, mm-hmm. but most of these... Um, high draft picks are very well managed. Okay. Uh, they are decidedly apolitical. They're uh, they have they basically their Twitter accounts, their social media is the equivalent of coach speak. Yeah. Uh, they look forward to playing the game at the highest level. They're you know looking forward to competition. You know those sorts of things. So the fact that that uh, Bose is really staking out a political life for himself not only heartened the president, uh, <laughs> but um, really uh, I think created some interesting dynamics. He was already had an interesting dynamic with Ohio State fandom. After getting hurt early in the season, he basically electively sat out much of the season to preserve his draft status. And a lot of Ohio State uh, fans were soured on him as a consequence of that. Yeah, I, w- I was kind of struck by the same thing. Like, uh, in a sense, I assume any player at that level of the sport has been taught well in how to communicate and basically you, you make yourself anodyne. Right? Mm-hmm, right? Exactly. But, I mean, it is one of the interesting wrinkles of how we add social media to this communication is now athletes have this direct, immediate connection <laughs> with fans, and I'm sure some of them are being coached in that, but you know, pardon me, like feels good for reporters, at least, that they will probably have lots of content generated by this particular Twitter feed. Absolutely. However long this career goes on. Okay, let's continue, Sam. Uh, And I will say, uh, I was listening to some national media stuff, The Ringer, they actually praised Minnesota fans Mm -hmm. because they uh, excitedly cheered when at number 18, the Vikings selected NC State center Garrett Bradbury. So the fact that Minnesota fans were knowledgeable enough to know offensive line, it's not an exciting pick, maybe, but it's something that we need. Mm -hmm. I think we're all happy with that pick. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The strangest pick of the first round was the Giants taking Duke quarterback Daniel Jones at number six. Uh, Many experts, including the ringers Danny Kelly, didn't only grudgingly had him in his top 100 in case he was maybe picked, but Kelly said he is not in my top 100. So I forget where I saw that. I think it was Twitter, and I forget the source, so I'm sorry. But (laughs) my favorite tweet about this was someone said that uh, Daniel Jones looked like who you would cast as playing a young Eli Manning in a story yes. about that draft. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's as far as I think we can go with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So I thought we should pause here and talk a little bit about the draft yes, because please. it's not something we've – I mean, it, yeah, I think there is a kind of economics here we could talk about. I just want to start with history, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, you guys know – sorry, I keep putting you in the spot. You know when the dra- NFL 1936. Draft okay, Sam does know this. So the NFL was still fairly young at this point. Still kind of regional league, but, you know, had East Coast, Midwest teams. Uh, So the story here actually has to do with our home state and one of Sam's alma maters. So in the mid-1930s, the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers were a kind of football powerhouse, hard to imagine. But their leading running back in 1934, 35, I think, was a kid from South St. Paul named Stan Kostka. Hmm. 
And Stan Costco is by far the best running back in the country as far as everyone measured it. Uh, every single NFL team was interested, but there was no How draft. How did they measure it in 1936? It's kind of like, I like the cut of his jib. Well, I, we'll, we'll come back to this because once you hear how the first draft worked, you're going to doubt how okay. the NFL functions in 1936. Anyway, he played it very well. He, he kind of played all these teams off against each other, refused to play. He actually ran for the mayor of what's now the suburb of Invergrove Heights, played baseball for the St. Paul Saints, and managed to extract like a $5,000 contract from the football Brooklyn Dodgers plus a signing bonus. Now, the unfortunate part of the story is that left them no money to pay their offensive line. He had a terrible season and ended up doing other he things. He needed Garrett Bradbury. That's right. So uh, what happened then is the other team that was competing for him, the Philadelphia Eagles, was very upset about this. And their owner went to the rest of the owners and said, for the sake of parity, we need a draft so the players can't hold us hostage like this. And so they held a draft. And what they did was... According to this, it was goldengopher.com, so I don't know how legit this is, but I'm going to trust it. They actually just kind of went through, like, press guides from all these different colleges, kind of made a list of all the seniors, wrote them up on a blackboard in a hotel, and kind of went through and took turns. They didn't communicate with the players. So, Sam, <laughs> the first the first player chosen was? Uh, Jay Burwanger, right? and he was the f- also the first Heisman Trophy he winner, was, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and I don't remember the school he played at. I thought it was the University of Chicago. I thought okay. it was at the very end before Hutchins got rid of the program. Okay. But. And uh, and the interesting thing about him is that the first player ever drafted actually refused to sign with his team. He went to, I believe, he went to England and uh, played rugby instead. And it was not uncommon. So something like a quarter or a third of these initial draft picks never played NFL football, which tells you something about the status. Did of the they NFL. boo the commissioner at the draft? <laughs> I assume so. Um, so I mean, to go back to your point, I'm not sure how they measure greatness because they didn't really know who these players were. Although at this point. Pick, putting the Heisman Trophy winner first is does say no. something. Thing. Well, they don't have a great track record, though. Right? No, 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 no. But I <laughs> including mean, the 1941 Heisman Trophy winner, the only from the University of Minnesota, right, Bruce. from my hometown, Bruce Smith, Faribault, Faribault Minnesota. Wow, nice. Uh, so anyway, it starts then as a way, uh, well, you know, ostensibly to create parity. Right? Mm-hmm. The Eagles were a terrible team. They lost out on the chance to improve their team with this running back, and so they argued, well, the terrible team should pick first. And you know, we've changed it over the years, but that's basically been the system. Now, other leagues have modified this. You know, the NBA with its lottery. But uh, the NBA adopted it pretty quickly when it started in the late 40s. Major League Baseball was until the 60s had a draft. And right. so, like, I guess the first thing I'd want to talk about is why do we have a draft? Like, uh, Major League Baseball for a long time, it was simply, it was your job to go out and find players around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and this continues because beyond North America, there is no draft for certainly Latin American and other international players. Now, it's being regulated a little bit. But that still is a place where you, you just have to go out. You've found baseball academies. You identify. It's more like international soccer. Where you've got kind of youth levels of sports, and mm-hmm. you're kind of filtering people up to the top, and most will fail, but some will then mm-hmm. enter your minor league system instead of a draft. Um, so I, I don't know where to take that exactly. Do you, I mean, is this, is this good in the sense that it produces parity? Let's start there. I th- think so. I mean, I, I think um, I mean, one of the things when they uh, the NBA draft, for example, is I mean, the worst place you can be is a playoff team, but, or excuse me, not a playoff team, but almost a playoff team, mm-hmm. because then you're never getting in those top five picks. And that actually, if you look the at... The cesspool of mediocrity. Right. I mean, if, if you look at, at you know, the last uh, 
you know, 30 years that they're often at the, in those top picks. Now, there's also guys who slip who are who are really great, but there's often star. That's where star players come from. So, so to get into that part of the draft, now that's a sport where having one mm-hmm. having one star player changes the fortunes of your entire franchise. Something like the NFL. You know, actually, uh, there's a lot of research to say that a, a first-round pick is actually you'd rather have two seconds than a first because mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be cheaper. Yeah. Uh, you know, because the 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 pay scale. I mean, there's a pay scale in, in a lot of these sports in terms of slotted by where you're picked and positioned and those types of things. But but a second-round pick is not that different in terms of value. Plus, you need so many more players on a roster that mm-hmm. that second the second round and the third round are probably where more value actually is. Yeah. So I mean. Uh, I want to come back to the their cheaper part because that seems like the other big part of this. But let's is why is parity desirable? I don't want to just assume that's actually a good thing for the way that fans or players or others interact with sports. Why should we want to seek parity construction? We're all, we're these? we're currently in a very small market yeah. relative, and it's it's uh, sports can feel defeating if you are the St. Louis Browns, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like. The Yankees are always going to have more money to go out and get players. And actually what they'll do is if you have a good player, they'll just give you a godfather deal and say, we'll pay you all this money, which you need to stay afloat yep. to uh, in order you know, to get your best players away. So you never, you never are able to get your feet off the ground unless you strike gold and maybe strike gold multiple times. Yeah, right. no, I, I think that's true. And it actually functioned that way in the 50s. The Philadelphia A's have been chronically poor. And they finally moved to Kansas City before they went to Oakland. And basically for the late 50s, early 60s, they were a farm team for the Yankees. Like Roger Maris came to the Yankees because they would have to sell off their best players. Mm -hmm. And the Yankees simply could – so it's definitely the rich got richer and the poor just never had a way Mm -hmm. out of being poor, right? So in that sense, I buy it. You asked this question, does this make this – does it – Improved is increased parity, yeah. and I think yes, the answer is clearly increases parity. Now, at the at the margins, we're trying to optimize that system, prevent mm-hmm. certain kinds of suboptimal strategies, mm-hmm. uh, tanking, for example. Right. And I'm I'm less concerned about that. I think that's a fairly definitive answer. I think I I'm, I'm uh, can we talk a little bit about why this happened and why it happened especially the draft happened especially in football? Well, so the other me obvious reason for this is this is restraint of trade this is a way to yeah, drive down exactly. labor costs right exactly. because stan costco is trying understandably you know to get the best possible deal knowing he wasn't going to play football for very long mm-hmm. now the numbers are substantially higher now but well and, all and, players should right, want to do this right? right and 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 when this these systems started uh there wasn't uh, a free agency was a different kind of thing yep. i mean it mm-hmm. wasn't so that was his one shot potentially to yep. be a free agent yep. you know and right. hit the market on with his own Well, and now what we've got is that exists later in a player's career. And what instead has happened is players have collectively bargained to accept this. I mean, Mm -hmm. in theory, when the next contract expires, the uh, NFLPA could say, we want to do away with the draft. We just want free agency right from the start. Mm -hmm. They're not going to do that. And what what you've seen in both the NBA and the NFL, I know for both of those, there have been uh, part of those CBAs are working to – uh, decrease the the pay of those those first year players so that the veteran players there there's more money for them because mm-hmm. there was the in the nineties in the NBA picks, first round picks early first round picks were making these huge sums of money mm-hmm. guys who had never played before and it was squeezing out veteran players so that that's been uh, realigned so actually those. Uh, rookies are a lot the rookie pay scale is a lot cheaper yeah I mean it's an interesting um, not contradiction but tension within labor mm-hmm. right i mean it shows up in other kind of sectors too but 
th- I think there's another aspect to this too, besides just the labor law too, which is this is a way for the owners and for the teams in the league, in a league, and especially in football here, to deal with the problem of asymmetric information. Mm-hmm. If every team has to independently surveil a, um, a, um, an infinite number of possible players mm-hmm. and do their own scouting, that's a significantly c- more costly mm-hmm. and fraught per enterprise than having a draft where everyone kind of collectively agrees on a much more defined set of players that they can focus their research on and then draft from that group. Well, and if I'm wrong, to go back to last week's topic, in the NHL, there actually is, I think, a central scouting bureau. I mean, they've that's, actually that's decided correct. to pull some of this to reduce those, I guess, inefficiencies, right, in their right. It just strikes me at some level, like, we accept it because it's become a spectacle unto itself. It's almost like its own sport at this yes. time of year. It's so strange, though. Right. Why Think about that? like all the college graduates that are about to leave their campuses this month. Mm-hmm. Are there any other sectors of the economy where there's something like this, where a relative small number of employers are going to get together and decide here's who is going to go to take each of these jobs? Like, uh, I went I, to a yeah. fairly significant graduate program in my field. There are not many people who can actually <laughs> teach European history, but there is no draft of us, right? right? But I wouldn't it be great if there was? You know, it, I don't know. <laughs> part of it is though is like. Uh, what is the fan base for Yale graduate? Like, like I mean, like a, as a fan, mm-hmm. it's the problem is is it's it's more fair for me as a fan, but it's less fair for those well, players. But right? there is right, like how many millions of students take history classes in the United States, right? Like, I mean, instead, what I was left with was I had to then go out do kind of the standard. That's a different economic thing. relationship, though, don't you think? Like a fan of a sport. No, but it's, it's the consumer of the product, right, at some level. I know we hate to think in those ways, but I, I just, like, I don't know that it's right or wrong. It's just a very odd thing. It, it, we it, kind it, of accepted yeah. that this happens in this part of the economy where, like, can we give any other example of how this works where the economy is structured in such a way that employees are simply chosen by employers at the outset of their career They've all kind of agreed to, you right. get this person because mm. they're great. This person's yeah. not quite as great, so you get them and pay them a little bit less. I mean, it's just a yeah. very odd kind of economy that we have. Yeah, I mean, I I, and that. I think part of the way we need to think about it is that the business isn't the teams, it's the league. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's part mm-hmm. of it is, like, if you're going into this, if you're going into professional football, you're going into the NFL. That's the business. Right. And then these are departments of the business that are that compete with each other, but they're different departments of one big industry, which is the NFL. No, that's a good way of looking at it. And I think that is change over time. Because right now, the reason the NFL makes money is because of TV deals. And the TV mm-hmm. deals depend to some extent on competition. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and at the same, you know, in earlier times, it really was franchises, right? right. Well, you know, they... They shared competition with each other because that gives them a product, but they didn't necessarily invest in the league's brand. Because right. right. what's interesting is the leagues want parity. Yeah, you know that, yeah. and that's you know that's that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, I think the other, th- and uh, I'm gonna, I don't want to pull up complete Tom Friedman here, but I also think part of this is globalization. Mm-hmm. And if we think about the big shared experiences, those big shared, uh, especially in the entertainment world. We don't just see this just in football, right? The draft is this essentially business proposition outside of the actual game itself, but we're as interested in this because we're interested in anticipating who the new players for our team will be, anticipating how the league is shaped, wondering if the – I don't care about the Giants at all, but I wonder if the Giants are going to have this egg on their face Mm -hmm. if this guy blows up and is terrible for them with the Mm -hmm. sixth pick, or if Kyler Murray is going to be great as the number one overall pick for the Cardinals. But that's not that different from when – Marvel releases the casting choices for the next Avengers movie. Mm. And then I'm anticipating I 
I don't know how they're going to act. I don't know if the movie's actually going to be good. But like, then I have six months, nine months, a year to anticipate, or or, or a trailer is released for the next Star Wars movie, like or um, a collaboration between Kanye and uh, um, and Bonavera is announced. Like, I, I get to anticipate like all of these things coming down the pipe. And uh, so I, I think this is part. This is the surfeit of information uh, that's that we have uh, as as a product of globalization. That we're this has become a secondary way of in participating in wow. entertainment. It's interesting because I, I was going to point out this is very uniquely American. I, I don't know that there's mm, really anywhere that that does drafts. Oh, draft, yes, yeah. yes, yes. But the secondary sort of participation in the sport and the business of sport. Yeah, no, I'll, okay, I'll buy that. But I mean, I, I do want to point out other professional leagues around the world do not do drafts. This correct. is unique Absolutely. to North America. Absolutely right? correct. Okay. Yep. All right. One more was, uh, boy, Pokemon. Sam, let's All do right. It. So <laughs> Chris Moore said we should pay attention to the European Championships of Pokemon. Uh, I believe this is the, in, in the card game senior division. T <laughs> Tanner Hurley won in the masters division. Mm -hmm. Gustavo Wada. Nice big upset there. Yes. In the video game division, uh, senior division champion was Alfredo. Chang Gonzalez, mm -hmm. and the Masters Division champion was Flavio Del Pino. Yes, FDP. Yeah, yeah. good job. So is Spain just like a bastion of Pokemoning in the <laughs> European Pokemon scene? My misunderstanding I of these names. I couldn't even begin to tell uh, you. You seem, you're nodding very I'm going to, I'm going to take this. the L on worth the watch on this. Okay, well, talking about... It was about, very hard to even find winners of I'm this I'm sure thing. it was. Talking <laughs> about Pokemon leads us naturally to the results of our poll from last week. So if you weren't listening last week... Shame on you. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Chris Moore suggested, based on the ongoing success of our current Jeopardy champion, that we consider Jeopardy to be a sport. And then also mm -hmm. suggested we talked about board games, chess, uh, mountain climbing. So I put together a list, I think, of eight sports and just mm -hmm. invite people to vote for as many or as few as you wanted. The only thing I add in parentheses was just assume they're being played at whatever their highest level is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. Okay. So uh, what I can't tell you is how many people voted. I can only tell you the total number of votes for each. Okay. Okay. So the, so it's not – okay, we'll right. come back to that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I'm sad to say that precisely zero people voted for Jeopardy. You were unable to – which is amazing okay. because three people voted for chess – Three people voted for your favorite esports, and three okay. people voted for one I added, which is competitive eating. Uh, and then we jump up to mountain climbing, which got 15 votes. And here's what's interesting. And then we jump up to bowling got 20, curling got 22, and golf got 23. So again, now what I don't know is how many people didn't vote for any of these, how many people didn't even vote for golf but voted for things below it in that ranking. Right, that right, right. I don't know. And I no one commented yeah. either. So. I would say the top three are all things we've been told count as sports. Yes. Right. There's yep. mutual recognition yeah. here. Yep. I actually voted for competitive eating uh, because that actually really can that, you that sell me on that? Cause I'm not here to I don't do that. Buy it. I'm not here to do that. It's but physical. Yeah, yeah. It, it matches. It ticks the boxes that need to be ticked. It's not a good thing, <laughs> but there's lots of sports that aren't good for the human body. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can you explain to me why mountain climbing ended up in the middle? Is that because we just don't think of it as a sport? Because it seems. Emo it doesn't seem competitive in the same way because you're not racing against someone else. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think. I think like if you're climbing, if you're the first person to climb Everest, like that, that's like like a scientific achievement too. Kind, of, I mean, it's sort of like racing to the poles or to. I asked Chris after the uh, podcast last week, like, was the space race a sport? <laughs> like, we were racing <laughs> to something. Like, 
You know, so it's like I think yeah, it, yeah. It, it it fits in a weird category. Can you share you you did some outside research on this and talked to an expert near house and asked your teenage son uh, Binked yes. uh, for criteria around this. Do you mind? Do you think he would mind if you shared what the criteria? Uh, he's not he listening, so yeah, he wouldn't mind. Okay. No, I mean he he talked about that it it had to be there had to be rules. It had to be competitive. It had to mm-hmm. there had to be a winner. Um, so I asked him something like, you know, so like if we, if, if, if he and I went for a walk, would that be a sport? Cause it's physical. He mm-hmm. said, no, but if he and I had a competition to see who could walk the most miles in a month, he said that would be a sport okay. because there are rules. There's a score. There's a winner. And okay. that's, that's his. All right, Chris, I feel like we have to hand this back to you for the final word because the people disagree with you. As we know, in a democracy, the people are always correct. So do you want to take back <laughs> your argument? True. Oh, that's not true? That's not a thing. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's the number of, like, t- retweets you got. Is that how it it's works? It's the now? ratio. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you, I mean, do you want to take another shot? At con- apparently, your first efforts failed here. I mean, you want to take another shot at convincing people that Jeopardy and maybe something like chess. Or I okay. thought about putting poker on there because that at least shows up on ESPN. Okay, so there's, there's two ways to approach this. One is the sort of uh, empiricist way. One is the sort the constructivist way. The constructivist way is just to say, stop it, stop it, um, is just to say that if we all kind of agree it's a sport, it's a sport. If we all kind of think that competitive eating is a sport or golf is a sport, and, and there's other external validators. It shows up in the Olympics. It's mm-hmm. a sport. Mm-hmm. It shows up in you know on ESPN. It's a sport. Mm-hmm. Or you could say we need to have some kind of ironclad arbitrators, uh, some, some de- delineators. And I would say that I'm, this is sort of where Banked is headed, right? There needs to be some kind of objective way that the result is determined. There needs to be some kind of athletic contribution. Like, mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, what we really mean is sort of physical prowess uh, that, re- that determines the result of the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tho- those, those lead to athletic competitions, and athletic competitions are sports. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds fair. I, I just thought it'd be a good place to end because, in a sense, like at least for a certain number of students between February and May next year, uh, we get to decide what's a sport. Exactly. Right? Or maybe, it, maybe we actually do need to kind of open that up from the outset and let students kind of help us define what are the parameters. If you say you're teaching a history and politics of sports class, mm-hmm. what are we actually studying? Should we spend right. a week on esports at the end because that takes away time? from other things, other competitions we could be talking about. Exactly. But we'll take a first shot at that in the second segment as we kind of recap this first season of the 252, the podcast, and look forward to the first season of the 252, Mm -hmm. the class. This week in sports history. Detroit, Michigan, May 2nd, 1939. Batting just 143 for the season, Yankees first baseman Lou Gehrig takes himself out of the lineup. Gehrig had played 2,130 consecutive games, but would never take the field again. He died two years later of ALS, the degenerative disease that now bears his name. Oxford, England, May 6th, 1954. Medical student Roger Bannister becomes the first person to run a mile in less than four minutes. After winning the European Championships later that year, Bannister retired from athletics and began a 40-year career as a neurologist. 
New York, New York, May 8, 1970. An injured Willis Reed inspires the Knicks to defeat the Los Angeles Lakers in Game 7 of the NBA Championship Series. New York becomes the first city to hold a title in each of America's four major pro sports. Louisville, Kentucky, May 5, 1973. Secretariat wins the Kentucky Derby, the first leg of his historic Triple Crown. He sets a record for each of the three races, winning the Belmont by a stunning 31 lengths. He's into the set. Secretariat leads his field by 18 lengths. And now Price of Prince has taken second, and Mike Gallant has moved back to third. They're in the set. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. All right, we're back for segment two of our season finale here in the first of what I think might be multiple seasons of the 252. Have we been re-upped by the network? Uh, we'll see what Sam says. He's okay. actually not here. He had to run up to do other things. But it actually works well because it gives Chris and, I, Chris and I a chance to not just recap the season but connect it back to this course we're teaching mm-hmm. in now less than a year, uh, right. History Political Science 252L, History and Politics of Sports. And uh, so it, it seemed like a moment to kind of think back through what do we talked about, uh, you know, how well does our syllabus kind of hold up at this point? Right. What do we need to add? Is there anything we should subtract, rethink? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also kind of think through, like, what have we not talked about? So these might be things that we want to come back to when we re-up this podcast, if we are re-upped in the fall. Yep. But let's just start with one thing we haven't talked a lot about, but we could talk about here because you have, a, I think, a kind of study to share with us. We've talked a, a lot about different kinds of sports at the professional and various levels of uh, American collegiate competition, we've not talked a lot about youth sports, apart from asking right. some of our guests their story, and they've talked about you know, midgets hockey or high school softball. But, uh, Chris, you found something about youth participation in sports you found interesting. Right. The Aspen Institute um, has been conducting a long-term project called Project Play, mm-hmm. where they're looking at physical activity amongst American youth. Mm-hmm. And, obviously, there are health concerns for this, health questions, but there's also just a... The changing nature of the panoply of sports that Americans, American youth actually engage in. And if we think about the way that sports plays a role in our society, we can't ignore the fact that s- kids are enculturated into sports. Mm-hmm. And what they end up playing has some bearing, not 100% bearing, but some bearing on what they end up uh, observing and participating in as adults. Mm, okay. Right? And a couple things struck me about this list. Um, so what we have here uh, is roughly from 2008 to 2017 or so, how um, how has American participation in sports uh, trended? And uh, we could say a couple things. One, there has been a slight but statistically significant decline in overall participation in sports in general. Hmm. And so this isn't huge, but it's really a decline from maybe 74% down to 71% for uh, kids from the ages of 6 to 12 who participated in a team or individual sport, right? Mm-hmm. That's still really good. That means that three to four kids are still playing a team or individual mm-hmm. sport, 
uh, from between the ages of six and twelve. But it is declining a little bit. It's then it's not growing. But what I think is more interesting is where those changes occur at, and that's really interesting. Now I don't want to get bogged down in year over year change because there could be some really stochastic things that that produce that. But if we look at the general sweep from two thousand eight to twenty seventeen. A couple things really stand out to me. We, we, would, we would hypothesize that maybe there would be some uh, football issues, and in right. truth, there actually are. So back in 2008, 3.7% of kids played uh, tackle football. Now, this is ages 6 to 12, so these would be relatively young football kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um and by the time we hit 2017, uh, we're down to 2.9%. So this is a, almost a 30% decline um, in uh, football participation. Not quite 30. I said 20% decline in, in football particip- tackle football participation. Likewise, though, there has been a increase in recent years in flag football participation. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of that is getting soaked up in, in other ways. Okay. But that, to me, is not the most interesting result. The most interesting result is just asking kids. Now, I don't know how they classify this as a sport. But kids who regularly participated in bicycling, back in 2008, hmm. almost 28% of kids uh, participated in bicycling. And I don't think they mean that as, like, bike racing. I don't think this is, a, you know, the, the Tour de France kind of thing. This is just biking, I think. Mm-hmm. And by 2017, this is down to about 16%. And there's a consistent decline over time in bicycling, which tells me that fewer and fewer kids are biking. And I think that – I don't know. As a kid who grew up in a rural small town – Biking was everything. Biking got me everywhere I wanted to go in, in this age range. Um, other big uh, – I'm curious to, for you, Chris. Are there other yep. things that sort of stand <clears throat> out to you in this list? No. I'm, I mean, like, I would expect increase in a sport like lacrosse, right? Like, as, yes. as soon as you mentioned, I thought about the proliferation of lacrosse. And so back in 2008, it was at 0.4%. It is mm-hmm. now more than doubled to 0.9%. Even just in the last year, it's gone up 8%. So there's right. clear growth. It's becoming less of a regional phenomenon. Right. Um, at the same time, like, that's such a small sample set. It's still, like, tiny compared to – it's still near the bottom of the whole list of sports on here. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is very much a sport that seems to me limited by the cost of participation. It seems really like a middle, upper middle class sport. Right. right? Like, I, I – so fair, but like I just associate with uh, prosperous white suburbs, yes. right? Is where lacrosse is played. Yep. Um, I'm a little surprised that baseball has not declined more than it has. So it was at 16.5 percent when the study started. It's now mm-hmm. 13.1 percent. Actually, yep. it's ticked up a little bit in the last year. Yep, it's been. I don't know. It's been sort of stochastic, is. but it's been really in that 12, uh, 12.5 percent to 14 percent range. Yeah. So like it's really there's this period from kind of the first Obama administration is when this is happening when mm-hmm. it loses a lot of ground. But it hasn't really continued to lose ground. Yep. I wonder if part of that reflects, uh, you know, I guess I'd hypothesize, immigration patterns, right? Uh, I Could. mean, in terms of what the American population looks like, it does now tend to include more people who, uh, you know, some either first or second generation immigrants from places where baseball is the main sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, otherwise, I, I mean, soccer has actually declined. That was the most surprising really other shocking. result to I'm me. I'm still not yeah. quite sure I believe that, from over 10% to under 8%. Mm-hmm. Is there any theories about that? That that really seems surprising. Well, I do wonder if uh, after sort of a, a, a boom of mm-hmm. soccer through the early 2000s, if we've hit some kind of a plateau here, a yep. uh, resource plateau, um, you know, a, a, um, yeah, I think that maybe uh, – 
as more and more children ages 6 to 12 flood into soccer programs, soccer programs can only be so big to handle that many kids. Right. And at a certain point, soccer programs might be coming, <laughs> might be coming more selective. We see this with hockey yeah. as well. Yep. And some, some kids just get selected out of the process because of uh, how time-consuming or how competitive it is. And they may be finding their way to other kinds of less competitive sports. Sure. I mean, the other thing that would be interesting is to break out all of those sports then – by gender, you could start there. Like, yes. I'd be curious to see where the growth in women's sports is taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go down to the next table, it does break down children ages 6 to 12 who played a team sport at least one day during the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there has been an increase in, in young girls playing. Yes. Uh, what actually stands out to me there is, again, an economic figure. So among, um, I assume this is households of under $25,000 in income. Yes. In 2011, it was about 42%. Of uh, those children played a team sport at least one day a year, that is now down to under thirty-five percent. Right, um, and we also see declines in the twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar range. Right, and it's not until we get above fifty thousand that we begin to see sort of modest gains in the number of uh, of people playing sports. Um, my my sense of this mm-hmm. economically is mm-hmm. that people who are in lower tax brackets not only. Um, have less opportunities to pay for sports. Sports mm-hmm. are becoming more expensive, right. but also uh, mm-hmm. job scheduling is becoming uh, more stochastic. And yep. so people are working, but they're working odder hours. They're working the gig economy. They're working things that don't allow them the regular schedules that can facilitate their kids' participation in sports. Well, I think it's also uh, the kind of resources and infrastructure that's available. I mean, I think at a lot of levels we've seen funding move down from you know, federal to state to local to what? So, like, we play youth baseball. Our kids okay. are in, it's called C-League. That is not actually part of the city of Roseville. It's not part of Parks and oh, Rec. It's a kind of private parent-run thing that has a little bit of an endowment. But we have to pay a fee then mm-hmm. to do it. And then we also have to volunteer to avoid paying another kind of fee to maintain the fields, to buy equipment. Coaches right. are all volunteers. But in a sense, like, you could see, I wonder if there hasn't been a shift over a generation or two of things that used to be part of it was a public good. I mean, along right. with we have parks, we also have programs in those parks. You know, as budgets get tightened, you just shift that onto the users themselves. And right. so pay to families play. are obligated to pay to play. And mm-hmm. that, you know, could help account for some of that um, kind of I guess, socioeconomic bracket differentiation. Yeah. Was there any explanation of why the overall participation rate had declined somewhat? I mean, I think you said three points. What was going on? Is that just the cumulative there's, effect of the other things? Uh, yeah, the Aspen Institute doesn't give us a write-up of why they think that's happening, mm-hmm. but I would hypothesize a couple of things. I would say, uh, first of all, both um, as... Uh, adults become busier even across all tax brackets. Mm-hmm. It's harder for youth participation in sports. Mm-hmm. I think, I think especially in suburban and urban areas, kids have more options mm-hmm. for multiple, multiple kinds of things to do. Mm-hmm. And so, sports are uh, although they're a major focus of gravity, they're not the only one anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I think th- I don't want to invest too much in this, but I might throw out there the technology mm-hmm. uh, as. Um, Video and f- smartphones and uh, online video game uh, things. Be- I, I would love to see what the what the participation in, is in sort of MMOPRGs, sort of uh, like Minecraft, for example. Yep. Yep. Is Minecraft cutting <clears throat> into baseball? Yep. And I'm, I do wonder about that. No, that's exactly where I was kind of heading. Given our discussion of what is a sport, maybe it's just that the study has, I think, a fairly traditional definition of the sport. Absolutely. But there could be other kinds of competition that – 
don't uh, focus so much on physical fitness, but maybe on hand-eye coordination, but still are doing yeah. competition leveraged through technology yeah. of some sort. And, and, and f- the competition is functionally free. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is there's no league to play Call of Duty. Right. But uh, are you, there, there are thousands of people online who would like to play with you at any given time. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so maybe youth sports is something that uh, needs to show up. Like, I'd imagine, as we were constructing the syllabus, I guess I imagine it showing up really in the first week almost. Like, as we've done yeah. with these guests, where we ask about what's your sports story, I think a big part early on in the class is getting students to reflect on what is their sports story. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll have some number of athletes in there, but I'm especially interested in how the non-athletes, maybe they stop playing, maybe they stop Never. playing very early on, but mm-hmm. they still in some ways participate as fans, spectators, as citizens who either mm-hmm. now or will have to pay taxes that support all of this, as part members of an economy, in which sports is a really big deal. Yeah. Um, I mean, as consumers of culture, like, I, so I'm, I think that's actually where it probably show up the most is we want to get them to think about how are they already involved in sports and then move them to how do you think then about sports is something subject to academic study. Absolutely. Which is something we talked about early on in this podcast and probably need to come back to. Like, I mean, I, I guess I felt that at times on this podcast, we were clearly talking as fans yes. of sports. And I think that's actually fine. And I hope that carries over into the class because mm-hmm. I think that is really important for the way we present ourselves to students and how we model this for students. Like, it's inevitable. And I don't think there's anything wrong. But there have been moments where I have to kind of consciously tell myself, Okay, but how would I now think about this as a historian of sports? And right. What would I pay attention to differently? How would I interpret differently than if I were just a Twins fan as opposed to a historian of baseball? Well, you can be. I mean, I, I don't want to just give us a um, a complete write off on this, but as a music um, a scholar of music, you can be a fan of Dvorak, but also just a critic at the same time mm-hmm. and, 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 and and I think with the same way like we have our teams we like we have our sports we like yeah, we have our yeah. things we're dubious about but at the same time we can step back from those and understand the structures and the development of the structures and the development of the history leading up to where those sports are at mm-hmm. and take those things seriously and, and not excuse them either. Oh, I think the critic is a good model. I, I often feel like we talk about critical thinking and we often mean that in terms of uh, deconstruction right yes. or pointing out inconsistency and that's a big part of it but i think you can really only be a critic if you appreciate something too right. like you champion something or you criticize because you want better for something and so maybe that's a kind of model I mean, to talk the, about with at students. the start the the biggest value claim that we make with this course is that we think sports has something important to say about our society absolutely so what's the most important thing you've heard then about american society humanity in the year 2019 as we've talked through i mean i think a pretty long list of topics Mm -hmm. i mean there's some things we probably haven't covered enough but i mean what's something you've heard us talk about that really kind of reinforces that i mean i I guess our founding impulse of why teach a class like this well because it's going to help us look in a different way at this part of american society or culture or religion or politics or the economy um like what what's something that stands out as you think back over these 12 episodes before this one well, as we want to, as we want to bring students who are sort of at the sophomore level into these conversations about the development of our society, the way that politics weaves throughout our society, the way that our society has responded, sort of you know, sort of these path dependent points that have shaped the institutions of our society, I think sports really provides a lens for that. And but I think the the way that it's um, uh, the way that it's most surprised me is, and I'm going to quote the 
uh, or use a concept from Pierre Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu, the French philosopher, who argued for praxis, mm-hmm. sort of daily lived practice. And for many of our students, uh, especially students who are sort of uh, white middle class students coming to Bethel, they probably don't think that much about race on a daily, pra- daily yep. practice kind of way, but in sports they do. Yep. So getting students to think about race or gender yep. or um, socioeconomic class, all of these things are uh, sports are a way into that as a daily lived practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a really powerful element for this course. Yeah, no, I'd agree with all that. And you know, if anything, we probably could have talked more about race and maybe also gender. I, mean, I, I think, think there were a couple of moments. So I think we'll actually probably focus a little bit more clearly at certain points in the fall and then mm-hmm. in the course. How about you, Chris? I, I mean, I knew it would be there, but I've been surprised how often we've come back to uh, essentially the history and politics of labor, right? Yeah, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I knew, well, of course, we're going to talk about Kurt Flood and Marvin Miller and player strikes and collective bargaining. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was interested that kind of run of episodes we had where we talked about college athletes as, I mean, are they employees? Are they something else? Right. What is the value of their labor? How are they compensated for that? Uh, they're not collectively bargained in some way. I mean, so this is not something I do a lot, I would say, in other classes. Like in my World War II class, we've talked a little bit about what the labor movement looks like in a time of you know, collective national self-sacrifice and how that's used to shame people, but also how the labor movement is an important uh, institution that is part of a public-private partnership, and so wages actually go up in some way. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so like, I, I do that once in a while, but like, I kind of feel like that almost is with race, gender, you know, kind of a thread that might need to run through this more clearly be brought out a little bit more and again a thing where i don't think americans are trained to think in terms of labor right like if anything it's declining labor union membership has fallen off along with most institutional memberships uh maybe especially in this campus like Hmm. i mean there are deep connections between evangelical christianity and the labor movement but that's not part of our tradition here yeah exactly and i think if anything we probably tend to get students who come from backgrounds where they're socialized to be suspicious of labor right? mm. it's it's corruption it's inefficient right? And, right and don't necessarily come from households where being part of a union is really important and you see very clearly the ways in which the deck is stacked against you and the only proper redress to that is to uh, take collective action i don't yeah. think our students are used to that so that that's something i want to think a little bit more about as, as we head into the course, or at least into the next season of this podcast. And that leads into something else I'd like to revisit in the fall if we, if we get re-upped, and that's the, the role of players as political activists. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's the obvious cases like Colin Kaepernick or um, uh, Tommy, um, uh, help me out here, uh, Mexico City, uh, 19... Uh, oh, uh, Tommy Smith. Tommy Smith, Carlos. thank yeah. you. Um, but I want to think about... Uh, uh, athletes as activists in smaller ways, hmm. and the the more uh, less newsworthy ways that athletes shape political discourse mm-hmm. um, in big and small kinds of ways. Yeah, um, I mean, as I think back through the syllabus, I think uh, if you recall from our first or second episode, we kind of constructed into quarters, and the yes. first quarter was essentially like, how do you do the history of these things? Mm-hmm. And so we kind of picked out certain sports we were going to talk about, and then students would get choice. Like, And so in that sense, I feel like we've actually done a pretty good job of touching on the history of a lot of different sports. Correct. Especially in the last couple episodes, trying to pick up, well, we hadn't talked about hockey very much. We hadn't talked about some of the racing sports very much. I think we've done okay there. Uh, the second quarter, then, is what we just talked about. That was where it was really consciously, how do we see sports as a mirror for this, but also as an engine of change? Correct. Uh, and that was where we were going to talk about race, gender, labor. 
Um, education, which I think actually is something we've done pretty well to this point, yeah. talking about higher education. I think so, too. I think one thing we haven't necessarily done is talk directly about Title IX. I think we've alluded to it, and it's we've effects, around it. but maybe we need to think. I actually just got a, a, a desk copy of a book on the history of Title IX that I thought we'd look at for okay. um, kind of readings. Um, the midpoint of the course is supposed to be a pause to write like a take-home essay uh, in which we step back and think as Christians about all of this. And mm-hmm. we've done that in a couple of moments. Uh, I think we could probably do some more with that, yeah, actually. So like we, we've... We've dabbled with some notions of like muscular Christianity. Uh, we talked with Paul Putz, Paul Potts, sorry about uh, um, kind of the intersection of race, politics, and religion. Mm-hmm. I should mention Paul just got a contract from Oxford Press to write a book about Protestants and sports in the 20th century. So oh, we Good could maybe him. pre-order that for 2022. Yeah, is when that'd be available. Great. But there are other ways that uh, the religious and non-religious have thought about sports, and I want to come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the third quarter is probably where we've done the least, and this is really more in your wheelhouse, Chris. So maybe I just need to turn the, the um, uh, script writing over to you, but that was going to be the kind of international quarter. Yep. So we've talked off and on about the Olympics, but not really intentionally about the Olympics. So I mean, what are some other ways in which you see some of your areas of specialization intersecting with sports? Like you mentioned globalization right. in our first segment. Uh, what are some things we could talk about some more as we lead into the course? Well, I like to – I want to think about um, – I want to introduce students to ideas like concepts of sports as a track to diplomacy mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. The way uh, – sort of sports being a diplomatic outreach outside of traditional diplomacy is what we mean by that. But also uh, sports as um, oftentimes the way that especially people in larger – uh, geographically larger countries like the United States. Uh, there's a correlation between geographically larger countries and countries that are l- people who are less well informed about the rest of the world, mm-hmm. right? So p- people who score the worst on internet global awareness kinds of tests, no surprise, the United <laughs> States, but also China, mm-hmm. Russia, mm-hmm. Australia, mm-hmm. Canada. Not quite so much on Canada, though. Yeah, They're yeah. doing a lot better. Uh, but these kind of countries, they can afford to ignore the rest of the world because they have a big land mass that they, that they live in. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, Luxembourg doesn't ha- doesn't afford that kind sure. of responsibility. But I do want to think about for many people around the world, sports is the way that they encounter other countries, mm. and how do ideas about other countries, values about other countries, perceptions form, and what role does sports play in that? Yeah, I mean a related uh, phenomenon there I'd kind of like to talk about is uh, sports as a kind of at least cultural or economic imperialism. Yes. So the extent I ever encountered sports in graduate school is because I was in <coughs> basically a diplomatic history program mm-hmm. or history of international relations. And at the same time, I was interested in some of my professors were interested in pushing beyond kind of traditional modes of international relations, foreign policy making. And so, like, I ended up doing a dissertation on education because mm-hmm. you get this peculiar encounter after World War II where the French are designing curricula for German school children mm-hmm. in places mm-hmm. like Baden-Baden. But there were some interesting books written that, that included sports as kind of you know, the emerging American empire in the American century, even before World War II in the 20s, 30s. So Hollywood was a big part of that for a lot of these scholars. But sports would show up as well in some ways. Um, and I suspect that's only amplified with some of the forces driving globalization. Sure. Right? And I, 
I, I never know how to assess this. What does it mean that all sorts of people in China wear LeBron James jerseys, right? Like, or or wear Michael Jordan sneakers in the eighties or nineties? Right. I mean, that's a kind of American empire or a Nike empire. At least. And so, like, I don't know where even to go with that, but that or seems like another. Dennis Rodman being part of our North Korean nuclear policy. <laughs> That's right. So, I, I like the idea, too, of like sports diplomacy is interesting. Yeah. Or, you know, like, there's an article I thought we'd talk about about uh, wrestling being a way of uh, bridging a kind of rapprochement between Iran and the United States Absolutely. and the way the ping-pong diplomacy functioned mm-hmm. for China and the U.S. during the Nixon administration. I think just, there's just more hard power politics kinds of ways, too. Uh, how do we fight over the selection of Olympics, yep. uh, World Cups? Uh, and then how do countries value their own national sports enterprises? Mm-hmm. And how do international competitions like the Olympics or soccer's World Cup do they need to reflect international norms of, say, human rights? Hmm. Right? That certainly mm-hmm. shows up in some recent site selections, but uh, the, those then become venues for contesting. So, like Sochi Olympics, LGBT Absolutely. issues, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm sure that'll happen when um, so Qatar is hosting the World Cup. Correct. The Gulf states. Uh, in the fourth quarter, then, was I don't want to say a grab, babe, but it was almost like where we headed. It was mm-hmm. like a kind of emerging fields. And so, like, I think we had put esports in there already. That's where we had <laughs> put things like gambling. Begrudgingly. And, and no, like, I mean, it seemed like. I mean, like, because the theme there was the intersection of sports with changes in technology. And so Mm -hmm. esports seemed like a way to do it. That's where we were going to talk more intensively about media. So harken back to that conversation we have with Scott I think we also talked about including how technology then affects sports. So like Moneyball, for example, but also player conditioning and some of those kinds of things. So I'd love to do something on transhumanism at some point here. Like, I think at a certain level, we all assume we are using technology of different sorts to enhance athletic performance, but then we also have some sense that there's a line you can't cross there. Mm -hmm. And usually we say that has to do with certain chemical enhancements, right? Whether it's steroids or amphetamines or... I mean, just uh, yesterday, I think, the International Court of Sports is ruling on testosterone levels for female athletes, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So at the same time, though, there are other kinds of enhancements. So like in baseball, I forget the number, but an astonishing number of players have had LASIK surgery, Hmm. right? And not necessarily, yeah, just electively because they think it makes them Ted Williams. They've got that eyesight. They'll let them pick up a curveball and make that .15 second decision Mm -hmm. all the more acutely. We're okay with that. I mean, there are other ways in which you can start enhancing performance by adding. I mean, just think of the work that down the road Medtronic does to help people using devices, right? Well, usually that's to extend life, right? Mm -hmm. People in their 50s with heart conditions is where Medtronic started. But what if people in their 20s who are seeking an edge in an Olympic competition could have a device that will let them run a little bit faster or their heart? beat a little bit more efficiently so that they could do endurance sports a little bit longer, be a soccer midfielder more effectively. Yeah. Um, how do we adjudicate that? What do we think about that? So I, I, I also imagine we're going to have a fair number of students from our uh, uh, human kinesthetics and applied health sciences programs who, who are doing exercise science, who are preparing to be athletic trainers. So I'd like to speak to their interests at some point too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like officiating was kind of an interesting one that came out of like a first segment discussion and I thought I don't think we had put that anywhere in there no. but that has a lot to do with the nature of competition and our expectations I want to blow this out a little bit and think about our relationship to rules mm-hmm. so as a political scientist uh, I hear all kinds of complaining about <laughs> various kinds of rules people yep. who don't like the electoral college people who don't like the supreme court people who don't like you name it and 
it's not that much of a stretch to draw a line between that and James Harden complaining about being fouled on every play in the yeah. in the NBA playoffs. We have respect for rules and we also have we also push against the rules. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think as I think this is a topic not just for sports but for us as as Christian scholars of politics and history to think about how we react to systems of authority in our world. Yeah, I mean, I think Paul is pretty clear. We're supposed to respect the authorities that have been ordained. Uh, does that include referees, that include referees? and commissioners? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, mostly just this whole season has made me first just enjoy talking with you and Sam because mm-hmm. we like to do this anyway. But it's I think I have like confirmed for me that this was a good idea. I think so, <laughs> the too. The course, the podcast, like it, I mean, it's – I mean, it's hard because we have to somehow fit this into a 16-week semester at some point. Uh, but it makes me more and more excited to want to teach this class and actually do this with students. And then at some point, like, leave room to respond to their interests and their questions, too, right. which is kind of a perennial challenge of any class that we teach at this level. So I'm looking forward to doing it, Chris. Likewise. Okay. We'll be back to wrap up Season 1 in just a moment. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. Okay, as always, we're running out of time, and we do want to save some time for Sam's pick here. So, Chris, let's you and I quickly run through our three to see. Or our two sure. To see. Uh, going back to what is a sport, perhaps, <laughs> uh, I would like to point out that France's fencing federation recently voted to recognize lightsaber dueling as an official event. We actually talked about this in episode, like, four or yep. five or something. There is no way to watch this fledgling sport, but what better way to get in touch with your inner Jedi than on May the 4th be with you? Oh, okay, no, seriously, uh, this weekend features pivotal games three and four in the NBA playoffs. I love the NBA playoffs. Mm-hmm. Check out the Raptors and Sixers, the Bucks and Celtics, Nuggets and Trailblazers, and the Warriors and Rockets. All right. Germany's Bundesliga is nearing the end of its season of competitive football. I think that's a sport, right? Yeah, we'll sport. give you yeah, that. for sure. With just three match days remaining, Bayern Munich are seeking their seventh consecutive title and have outscored opponents by an average of 1.6 goals per game, which is a lot, right, Sam? That's right. a lot. It is okay. a lot. <laughs> okay, but Bayern are only two points ahead of the last team to beat them out for the Bundesliga title, Borussia Dortmund. And Bayern's remaining opponents include the third and fourth place teams, RB Leipzig and Eintracht Frankfurt. All right, and uh, this is a little on brand for me, but this Saturday is the 145th running of the Kentucky Derby. Nice. The 20-horse field will race the mile and a quarter at Churchill Downs in Thoroughbred Racing's most prestigious event. The leaders in qualifying points for the Derby are two horses with names historians can enjoy, (laughs) Tacitus and Omaha Beach. That's fantastic. The favorites in the race are Omaha Beach at 4-1. I checked the updated these this morning. Omaha Beach at 4-1, Game Winner at 5-1, Improbable at 6-1, and Roadster (laughs) at 6-1. My sneaky uh, picks to finish in the top three. So I'm not saying these horses are going to win, but these are horses to look for to finish in the money. Uh, Maximum Security at 10-1. 
He ran a 101 buyer speed figure in winning the Florida Derby on March 30. Now, to explain this, Thank you. Uh, the only other two Derby horses to run a triple-digit buyer number are the favorite, Omaha Beach, uh, who ran a 101, and Improbable, who ran a 100. Both of those were on April 13th at the Arkansas Derby. So the buyer speed figure is a number that was put, that was created by Andy Byer of the Washington Post in the 1970s, and it takes it, the horse's time, track conditions, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Weather competition level competition all those things into into account. So uh, getting into triple digits is a is a pretty big feat. The the highest recorded buyers number ever uh, was, was from a horse in 1987 named Groovy who ran a 133. Mm. Um, he, buyer the, these numbers didn't exist uh, during the run of Secretary, but buyer uh, postulates that in the Belmont Stakes Secretariat ran a 139. So like, do you have a sense last year? The buyer number for the winning horse. I don't know. I, I I actually don't know. But I I like. I'm just looking for those. Those are That's the fastest. Predictor. Those are the fat. And, and what that shows me. The reason I picked uh, I picked uh, uh, maximum security is that it ran a 101, the same number that the favorite ran. So so it is capable of running at the same uh, at, mm-hmm. at the, you know at the same ability. But you get ten to one instead of four to one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want a sneakier pick, that's a little bit further down. I also like the odds of a horse called Win Win Win. Uh, <laughs> Which ran has a top buyer number of ninety nine, but it's fifteen to one odds. So if you're looking for, you know, it, if I told you, hey, I think the favorite's going to win, who cares? That doesn't mean anything. But I'm giving you some picks that are a little bit further down the line yep. who have the ability to finish. Now, win 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 is a it's a, a horse that's a strong closer. So that's as the as the lead horses start to fade. This is a fast horse that runs from behind. So I'm hoping that 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 we land that in the top three. Is this an audition tape for NBC? <laughs> you you want to be so amazing? I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, Chris. Uh, yeah, okay. So you had mentioned Omaha Beach, and I mentioned that to my son, who already enjoys watching the Kentucky Derby. He also enjoys World War II, and this is the 75th anniversary of Like, he is so excited. Isaiah Garrett, you Beach picked win. a winner. Oh, he's going to be so disappointed. Uh, so, question number one, if we have time. Yeah. Um, when do we expect to run out of names for horses in the Kentucky Derby? <laughs> Never. Because win, win, okay. win is an office Question reference. number it's two. Great. You described this as Thoroughbred Racing's most prestigious event. What makes the Kentucky Derby? Is it because it's first in the Triple Crown? Yeah. Oldest and I, race? Well, and it's, it, it, it's, it's old, first in the Triple Crown, and it's uh, it's a race for three-year-olds. So so at, by the time they're three-year-olds, those horses are pretty mature. Uh, mm. And then, I mean... It, some of these horses are get better as they get older, but this is this is a good sort of entry point into the career of some of these horses. All right. Well, as always, you heard it here first in two five two. So we'll see how Sam's picks do. Uh, Chris, any last thoughts before he closes out? No, this has been a blast. I can't wait to teach yeah, this class. Yeah. Okay. All right. On behalf of my colleagues uh, here at uh, Bethel University, um, let's keep. Uh, I don't, what, what's I need a horse sign off, Sam? Can you give me a horse sign off? Some kind of down the stretch they come kind of thing. Yeah, here we go. Down the stretch we come. Finish up the semester. Go Royals.